This episode of Masters of the Market is proudly brought to you by AIA Health Insurance with AIA Vitality, cover that protects and rewards. To find out more, call 133 AIA or visit aiahealth.com.au today. When there's blood in the streets, uh, lift up, check under the carpet. Many try, but few become master of the mark market. Well, Tom Lambert, thanks very much for coming on uh, on Masters of the Market. You're debut for Master of the Market, but uh, I know there's plenty going in, in markets, so really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, thanks for having me on again. Exciting. Now, I know you've, uh, you've done a couple of episodes of Talk Your Book before, but you haven't been on Master of the Market, and there'll be some viewers or, or listeners that don't know about BP Capital and what you guys invest in. So I thought maybe if you could give us a, a brief background of, of what you guys do at BP. Yeah, sure. So we're an equities fund manager. Uh, we have a mandate to uh, basically just grow capital over time by investing in predominantly the Australian stock market, but, um, but the mandate's quite broad, so we can look at uh, small caps, mid caps, large caps. Um, typically, uh, most of our investments are in the small to mid cap end of town. And we can also um, be long, we can be short. Um, it's really about uh, the opportunity that's that's in front of us. And this episode, for the next month or so, I want to have a, um, a bit of a focus on portfolio construction and, and how different investors size their bets. It's something that professional investors like you generally think a lot about, whilst in my experience, retail investors don't often put the same amount of thought into it. So broadly speaking, how, how do you guys structure your portfolio construction and, and think about sizing your bets? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a great question. It's, it's an important consideration, I think, for any investor. Um, and, and many people have different styles. So I think um, for a few caveats around that, uh, my answer to portfolio management or portfolio construction um, will be different to another fund manager's view of it because he may have a different product or a different mandate. Um, as an equities fund manager um, focused on absolute return, we view portfolio management as, as being two things. It's growth optimization and risk management. And we think that risk management enables growth optimization. Um, that's the, you know, the the former is the I guess the the prize, um, but we need we need both to work uh, in tandem to have good portfolio management. So um, why is it important? Because you know we think that without portfolio management, you you can't actually execute on on your on your good stock ideas. So you can either be you know to take things to an extreme, you can be too too invested in in one thing. Um, or not enough, or you can be underinvested by not having enough concentration and therefore not being rewarded for your good ideas. So, uh, good good portfolio management will take into account um, this and will provide hopefully a good balance. And you use Kelly criterion uh, pretty extensively in, in working out how you, you balance your portfolio. Maybe talk to us about the origins of the Kelly criterion through its its gambling history and uh, maybe. Explain the basic formula on, on how that works. Kelly criteria is very important for growth optimization. Uh, we think that it's a useful tool in uh, optimizing, you know, our return on capital in the long run. And um, you know, as you as you allude to, Kelly has a long history. Um, it was originally uh, 
formula and the original paper was written in 1956 by a guy called John Kelly. Um, he was uh, an engineer. He was actually uh, developing a solution for uh, AT&T to solve um, a telco engineering problem. But um, since 1956, it's been used in a range of other uh, activities. And, you know, you mentioned professional gambling. It's been used in, in blackjack. Um, it's been used in um, poker. It's been used in professional sports betting. Um, and in the investment world, it's, it's been used extensively, uh, most notably by, uh, you know, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger at Berkshire Hathaway, um, you know, the great American investor, Ed Thorpe, um, the bond investor, Bill Gross. So it's had uh, a lot of history in financial markets. Uh, it's, it's got its limitations, which we can speak about. Um, but the, the simple idea behind it is you can, getting back to that problem about bet sizing or you know, investment sizing, um, you, what is the optimal amount to, to invest if you have a good idea? Uh, and, and this formula really gives you a framework um, to tackle that problem. At, at a high level, without getting bogged down in the, in the maths, but the, you know, the, the algebra is, is, is simply um, the idea that you have the expe your expected value or your expected edge, and you divide that by um, what your, your total um, upside is. And that gives you kind of a ratio or a percentage to, to work with to, to begin to, to bet size. And you know, that's obviously very important if you're, if you're managing um, a portfolio. You can imagine if you're a professional gambler, that's, that's very important when you're assessing um, whether to bet on um, a particular hand of blackjack or not and, and how much to bet. Uh, if you have no edge, it's, it's obvious to say that you shouldn't bet. Um, that is if the expected value is, is negative. So, so my you, limited understanding is if you're, let's say, playing a game of blackjack and you're in a situation that says you've got a 60% a chance of winning, the formula mm -hmm. will say double that, then reduce it by one, and you should bet 20% of your allocated capital on that opportunity. Is that is that a very basic layman's understanding in a betting circumstance, how the formula works? Yeah, I mean, like, the, way, the way that I would um, look at it is, you know, very simply, let's just say you've got a 50-50 shot at, at winning a um, particular hand. And, um, but if you, but if you win, um, you know, you're going to win, you're going to win, um, you know, $10. And if you lose, um, you know, let's say, let's say, you know, you maybe you only lose, maybe you break even or you only lose $5. Then, yeah. then obviously that's a positive expected value outcome because, you know, your, your return profile is skewed to the upside. Um, and depending on what, you know, what kind of assumptions you make around that hand, um, that'll, you know, you put the numbers in the formula and it'll tell you to bet a certain amount. And, and often, often the number will be double digits depending on what, you know, your assumptions are. And, and so one of the limitations with the formula is, is it, it assumes you can, you can realise the outcome of the first hand before you play the second hand, if that makes sense. Talk me through what that means. Well, that has its limitations in the stock market because if you, you know, unlike blackjack, the stock market is, is dynamic and often you have to have many investments going at once. Um, you can't just 
realize a particular outcome off of, mm. of an investment thesis um, after you know one day or one week. The other limitation of it, Chris, is you know it doesn't account uh, very well for volatility. Um, mm. It count it accounts for downside risk. So I want to distinguish those two terms because um, you know people often get them confused. But downside risk is is accounted for in, in your expected value assumptions. Um, you know, getting back to that formula, we're measuring upside and downside and getting to um, a particular uh, set of odds. Risk is, is, is often talked about in, in terms of variance and, and that's what I mean when I say volatility, I guess. It, it does a very poor job of, uh, of managing volatility. And to your point earlier, you can often be told to, to put 20% of you know, your portfolio in any one investment or if you're playing blackjack, 20% of your bankroll in any one particular bet. Now, if you, if you say that to your, your average super fund manager, um, you know, they'll probably have a heart attack. 20% is a, a large number um, you know, of the portfolio, and, and obviously that's going to lead to higher short-term and medium-term volatility, which obviously no one wants. That said... If you look at some of the great investors like Warren Buffett, he's got over forty percent of his uh, of his Berkshire Hathaway capital in Apple in one stock. Um, so it does have merit, uh, but you know you have to have high conviction. You have to be relatively certain, obviously, and you have to be able to be good at measuring uh, probabilities and odds. And I'd imagine it's a challenge when you're managing other people's money as well and there's the risk of redemptions because like you said it something that's a 50 percent chance of going a 50 50 bet but the upside is 5x and the downside is 1x i mean that is a bet you should take every day of the week but like you say when you're managing other people's money and there's risk of redemptions um i guess managing that downside before you lose all your capital in that particular investment is, is part of the art, I guess, that, that you guys have to implement. Spot on. And, and that's exactly why, as I said, no one likes volatility and that's exactly why we, we run um, a version of Cali. Um, it's, a, it's a framework that we use. It's, it's not, we don't stick to it by the book because, as you say, um, no one wants those huge swings that, that, that Cali delivers. Uh, if you're running private money, then... You know, and you have a stomach for volatility, then then maybe. Um, remember, the other problem here is is managing everyone's psychology. You've got you've got the manager's own psychology. You've got investor psychology. You know, unit holder psychology. Um, people make poor decisions when when under pressure um, or clouded by emotion. And the last thing you want is to create an environment of of volatility and emotion, um, because typically you'll make a bad decision. Uh, so, yeah, that reason as well, which which Ed Thorpe talks about um, in you know in some of his papers, is is also a reason not to use um, you know a fully um, a, f- a full Kelly. Um, so you've got to use a a version of it, a heavily diluted version. And the way that we get around that problem um, <clears throat> of managing volatility is. We have constraints on the risk side. So going back to, to what I said for the first principles, um, Cali will help you optimise growth. But then you've got to have proper risk management in place to make sure that that Cali portfolio is, is, a, is appropriately managed. And 
and the volatility is managed. And so we, as a, as a rule, we only have 10% um, of our capital in, in any one stock as a way to, uh, and, you know, we obviously have other, other principles and rules that we, we follow, but as an example, that helps us eliminate some of that, that volatility um, because it means that you're never in a situation where you have a large proportion of your, your capital in, in one, one stock. Does that also mean you end up selling your winners earlier than you would have personally liked? It, it probably does, uh, if, if we're completely honest. And um, to, to talk about a stock that you and I have spoken about before, um, you know, the reject shop, uh, that was a good example of perhaps selling a bit too early um, to manage risk. But it, it just it's not perfect. Uh, yeah. It is what it is. But you try and take the good with the bad. Remember, the idea is you need to get to the long run, and and the long run is you know Kelly's going to serve you very well in the long run, but the short and medium term can can blow you up. So you've got to focus on number two, which is manage risk. So before we get to that, I just wanted to dig down. I guess the first bit of that Kelly principle that's a challenge for some people is a knowing what the odds actually are in an investment and. Mm-hmm. I guess to start, you've got to be able to have good faith in your valuation metrics to say, well, this is really an asymmetric return profile um, and it's not just an even money bet that could, could double or could go to zero. Is, is that sort of step one to giving yourself the confidence to, to implement this formula? So, so yes, it's a good point. You've got to be able to good at, be good at picking stocks and, and also good or, or humble about uh, your level of certainty and you know, those, those two things are, are very hard. Um, they're qualitative inputs. Um, you know, there are other models of portfolio theory which, which you can use, uh, which try and, try and give, you know, a more quantitative input. Um, but at the end of the day, it comes down to manager skill. And you're absolutely right. There's, there's, no, there's no kind of shying away from that. Uh, it's, it's garbage in, garbage out. And, and Kelly will be useless to you if, if you don't have uh, the right inputs or, or at least, uh, at least cons- you know, a conservative estimate of, of what they are. And so you might have, so let, let's say you've got, I don't know, between 20 and 30 stocks in the portfolio at any one time. Is that around about the right number? Yeah, we would have anywhere between 10 and 40 where... We're pretty flexible about what we have in there, and it really depends on on the market opportunities in front of us. But but yes. And so stock X comes across your radar. You do the work on it. You like it. Let's say stock X is at three dollars. Mm-hmm. Will you then say, well, we'll buy it at three. If it goes to two fifty, we'll sell it. So that's our downside. Is what? 50? Um, not 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 as not as ruthlessly as that. Um, what we'll do is we will. We'll pick, we'll pick a stock at three dollars, and let's say if we think, let's say we think the upside is is one hundred percent to six dollars, and we think yeah. the downside, we think you know there's a chance we're wrong completely, and a downside, um, if we're wrong, we think you know it could be fifty percent. Okay, just yeah, on, on, on a one year, sure. one or two year view, um, we won't be too reactive about you know, short-term corrections. If, if the stock's sold off uh, 10%, 20%, then we'll want to know why that is. And if there's a good reason, then, then 
you know, maybe we need to review our investment thesis, which goes to the, the heart of Kelly. You know, if, if our invest, investment thesis is wrong, you know, that upside versus downside calculation, then, then we need to fix it. Um, and that might mean selling. If nothing's wrong and the, the thesis is intact, but maybe there's a, a systematic reason behind, um, you know, market sell-off, um, you know, for instance, you know, some companies were, were maybe unnecessarily sold off in, in March. Um, you know, some were, you know, sold off for, for a good reason, but, but others maybe were caught up in the, in the, you know, the wave of things. Um, then we will, we will most likely stick to, you know, our view. Now, it doesn't mean that we won't risk manage. If, if it got to a point where it's all in context, Chris. So if, if our portfolio is, is heavily long uh, and, you know, we think we're overexposed to a particular theme or conviction, then we will trim. Or, or if that theme or conviction is, is not playing out for, for whatever reason, then we will trim. But we, we try not to be too short-term about, about when we, you know, change our view. And so you've got, you've got this stock X, you say the downside is 50%. Upside is 100%. Let's say it's a 50-50 likelihood that it's going to go to either of those points. So good bet to make. Mm-hmm. Let's say it's an airline stock. All of yep. a sudden, three months later, another airline stock comes across your desk that you really like, that you feel uh, just as undervalued or even more so. What do you do then when you've already got a position in an airline stock in, in terms of from a portfolio perspective? Uh, if there's a better opportunity, then, then there has to be a reweight. Um, doesn't make sense to hold on to something that uh, just because we own it. Um, so, so the the answer is it's it's horses for courses. It, it we will not be stubborn about about selling. Um, we will only sell if we think our investment thesis has has a problem. But I think I think you're at the point you're also getting at is around concentration and with yeah. the um, and and that's and that's very important because it, it goes to. Um, you know, correlation and, and risk as well. So um, we are we are considerate of that. Um, we have we have rules around principles around you know, how, how comfortable we are um, holding. Let's say let's say we have thirty percent of our portfolio in in airlines. Um, you know, is that is that a, is that a high? I would regard that as a high number, by the way. Um, and you know, we would actively try and manage that down. Um, to a lower number, but but we, we would you know, to, to answer your question directly to to substitute within a sector, we can do that, and and I wouldn't I wouldn't shy away from doing that if if I can buy a Qantas and I can short sell Virgin, <laughs> I'm obviously you know um, in hindsight, um, but if there's an, if there's an opportunity to upgrade our you know our, our holdings by trimming something else, then absolutely yes. Uh, if you found two stocks in the same sector and the valuation metrics and the upside and downside potential you felt was near identical, would your preference be to take half a position in both of them instead of yep. isolating one? Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. And so then exploring that, so many things that I feel like they're almost just one, you know, just one trade, like whether it's 30-year bond prices and the way they correlate to tech stocks and then you could probably put copper in that and various other stocks labelled as the, the reflation trade stocks um and you've got other stocks that are maybe built more for for a deflationary 
outset, particularly sort of precious metals. How do you look at, say, stocks that are, are correlated potentially, but not in the same asset class, e.g. some of the growth commodities and, and some of the you know, cyclical retail stocks or, or things like that? You bring up a couple of points. I think on the first one, you know, it's really about the market you're in. And I think your observation is it's interesting um, that, that everything does appear correlated in, in, in some sense. Uh, certainly everything was correlated on the way down mm. in March 2020, wasn't it? Uh, and, and it does seem it was correlated on the way up as well. Certainly, certainly growth and cyclicals were. Um, value became a bit later. But mm. Nevertheless, you can, you can make an argument that, you know, the market has been correlated um, or many stocks have been correlated to each other. Uh, I should say, uh, my view on that is is having read a lot of a lot of uh, a lot about some of the history of markets and um, some some greater minds than mine have said that markets often often change. You just don't know when, and so it is it is true they might feel correlated now. Um, that may not hold. Mm. So you shouldn't take it for granted, uh, and it's very—it's easier said than done, of course. But we should all hopefully have an open mind about changing our uh, our view or the way we look at a particular market or sector. Because um, even those tech stocks, which intuitively you say, well, they're, they're growth stocks linked to growth, but during lockdown they became sort of linked to almost the lockdown deflation, you know, similar to gold in a sense, weren't they? Um, so those correlations sort of maybe shifting at this point as well. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, you, you saw you know, Redbubble, Temple and Webstar, um, you know, Afterpay, Sezzle, Zip, uh, anything exposed to online, even bricks and mortar retailers that had growing or online presences like Adairs uh, did very well, uh, you know, surprisingly. But you're right, there was... All of those stocks kind of moved together, um, and and that was a change. And then you saw the rotation back into value uh, come you know, really in the last few weeks, and, and obviously you know, today overnight with, with the Dow, um, the Dow was up, the Nasdaq was down, and and you know, when was the last time we saw that? I can't remember. And so when you're looking at your portfolio of stocks, and you, let's say you've got thirty in there at, at, at this given time. Do you think through what you think the correlations are at any point in time and how you could get less correlation in there? Or, or how do you sort of view it when you, you know, from a, a nuts and bolts point of view when you're looking at your portfolio? Absolutely, we do. And your, your more theoretical portfolio managers will, will tell, you know, tell you that, you know, Markowitz, which is the traditional portfolio theory taught at business schools globally, um, and that's you know all about the efficient market, and it's all about diversifying away, um, you know the the unsystematic risk. Basically, adding stocks to, to the portfolio to, to lower risk. Um, and if you can add stocks that have um, you know low correlations or ideally negative correlations to each other, then then you can you can you can lower risk of the portfolio even more. So, you know that's been mathematically proven, um, and and it obviously holds now. There are shortcomings with that, and and in principle we do that. By the way, um, we just so don't... you would sometimes buy a stock you don't. Let's say you rank it as stock number eighty, 
but because it's uncorrelated, it fits into your, your top 30. Is that something you would do? Not not less, no, not to the same extent that, that maybe Marco Eats would uh, would hope because as I said from the at the start, our approach as an equity fund manager at VP is to is to enable the optimization of growth. It's it's not to um, it's not to 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 run a risk management book um, as an as an end in itself. Um, we only want to use it as a tool to to get to a final outcome, which is you know high quality returns on capital over over a long period of time, hopefully. Um, and so the, the so the direct answer to that question is 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 you know no. Um, if if we're just adding things to that have very poor returns, um, but maybe have lower risk, then we don't think that's a good use of capital. We're probably better off not doing anything uh, with it with our cash, um, or trying to find something that can, can offer you know a halfway house. But it's a consideration. We we wouldn't, you know, and I say it's a consideration only. Like if we had identical return payoffs, but we thought that by splitting the risk or you know splitting the investment over two or three or four stocks you know then that's a smarter way to do it um so I'm, I'm looking i'm looking here for ways to optimize growth i'm not necessarily um focused on on just putting things in in the portfolio that that, that uh, tend to be um you know poor poor return poor return you know ideas and so what we talk about the sort of kelly criteria and weighting the bets and even your, your view that you prefer to have two similar stocks in the same sector rather than one. That sort of mindset speaks to someone with a pretty good win rate and their investments. And you know, there's, there's good investors that might win 50% of the times, particularly in the VC world, they might even win 30% of the time and make a huge, a huge return on that because when they do win, they win you know, 10X or, or 20X their investment. Is this sort of mindset using the Kelly criteria and weighting your bets reasonably conservatively more appropriate for an investor that has a, a higher win rate? I think if you, if you have a higher win rate, um, you've, you've got to look at the total picture. You've got to look at the odds plus, plus the win rate. And, you know, the way, the way that I see Kelly, it works so long as you can get to the long run. Um, and the long what do run, you mean by the long run? The long run may mean... Uh, a thousand to to go back to the blackjack example, it may mean a thousand bets because yeah. the law of large numbers means that you know as we know expected value you know equals outcome eventually. Um, so long as you you bet enough times to to get there. So the, the problem is you know if you don't ever get to the long run, as I said, then you know you're gone, you're, you're finished. So. Um, you've blown up your book. So if you can win 52% of the time in blackjack, then you're doing very well. Uh, and, you know, providing, providing that you're getting good odds on, on those bets. Um, so it's not just about frequency of win, but it's also are uh, you betting on the right things. Um, just to pursue your VC analogy for a second, um, the problem with venture capital and Kelly, uh, you don't have arguably enough uh, of a sample size to really mm. test it or al allow it to, you know, to, you know, to, to, to sort of play out to get to the long run. So you may only have three or four investments per year in a VC and that's just not enough. Whereas you could play 
I don't know, a thousand hands of blackjack in a, in a night pretty easily. Um, so you are correct in asserting, you know, Kelly has limitations with respect to some styles. I, I don't think it's always about win rate. You, you could have a very low win rate. You could have a 30% win rate, but if you're getting consistently 10 to one payoffs on that, yeah. then Kelly still might be appropriate. And talk to me about, before we finish up, just say your ideas around holding cash, like you're measured against the index, I assume. Is it a temptation for you to put XX cash in an index fund so it's not underperforming during that time it's out of the market? Or do you really view that cash as just such a nice option to have if markets do tank? You don't want it in an index um, in an index fund while it waits. It's more, it's more the latter. Uh, John and I have, have a view of, we try not to over-engineer things. Um, I mean, particularly, it's, it's almost a moot point anyway because rates are so low. Uh, but we have cash at call uh, simply because we, we do participate in a lot of primary market opportunities anyway, and we need it there um, to, to flush through. So uh, it's, more, it's more the latter than the former, Chris. Do many funds keep their XX cash in index funds? Or if you're doing that, is it sort of in conflict with being an active asset manager so they avoid it? You know, no, normally to, as an example, they'll, the famous short seller, Jim Chanos, has has his fund uh, full of shorts, but he's also along the index um, oh, you know, okay. with to, to beat a neutral, to balance the risk. So, um, you know, there are those examples, you know, I'm not. I'm not sure whether it would be appropriate for an opportunity fund such as ours to do that. But because at the end of the day, if you, what you want your cash for is, is to you want you want to deploy it when you know, when the prices are good. Um, you, you don't want to. You know, if you're if you're locked up in the market, then if you if you take March 2020 as an example, yeah. your cash. You know, you're in the, you're in the market, so you're down. Um, yeah. Yeah, cool. I, I I just always thought that those investors, particularly when they're holding 20, 30% cash, you know, that they're so exposed to underperforming the, the index that they get measured by to at least take that risk out and they can still use that other 70 to outperform. I, I was wondering if that was entered their uh, their mindset. But, um, mate, I think we'll have to wrap it up there. That's been brilliant. Uh, I've learned a lot, given me plenty to think about. So, um, yeah, appreciate you coming on and, and walking me through the Kelly criteria and, and how you view risk and, and maximising your capital. Uh, thanks very much for having us on, Chris. For more info on today's partner, AIA Health Insurance, visit aiahealth.com.au or call 133 AIA today. If you're enjoying Masters of the Market, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest. Thank you.